My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro John Let's Go podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we've stepped back into superhero space and back into the space of an author that I've got a contentious engagement with. Uh, we, of course, are going to be discussing the film Kick-Ass, directed by Matthew Vaughn, based on the comics series by Mark Millar. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. We went to the cinemas yet again to see something we've been wanting to get at because of the bullshit distribution stuff that always gets us movies late. <laughs> yes, we wanted to clean up the uh, the last of the 2022 movies we needed to see before we did our best of episode. There were stragglers. So, yes, they were later than usual mm. this year, I must say. But uh, we went to see Pearl, uh, which is a psychological horror film. Uh, and elements of dark comedy to it as well, I would argue. Uh, directed by Ty West is the prequel to another 2022 movie, X, which we all very much enjoyed. And it's set in 1918, and it follows a farm girl named Pearl, played by Mia Goth, who really wants to sort of escape from the doldrums of her life. She wants to get away she wants to be a star. I'm gonna uh, be a star! Yeah. But she is also a psychopath and is really on the brink of losing all control over her darker urges. So, uh, before I do my thing, why don't you guys tell me what you thought of uh, Pearl? Why don't you start us off, John? I really enjoyed this. I appreciated a lot of what it was doing in terms of the visual style of it. It's very much old classic Hollywood in terms of a sweeping string-based score. The color palette is very much that classic Hollywood. Sort of pastel. Pastels, it's visually a treat. And that goes to a lot of the creative choices in, you know, shot framing, some of the imagined spots that happen in the movie are fantastic. And performances <coughs> here, particularly by Mia Goth, are really good. She has just this complete brokenness. Yeah. Pearl is a fantastic character because everything about... Everything she does, there is a twisted reason behind it. And I wouldn't call it logic. There's there's a particular moment in the movie that all three of us were surprised went on for as long as it did. But I'm happy it did because it showed off how good of an act uh, she is. See, I can think of three different moments that yeah. could be <laughs> describing what you're could be what you're describing. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a really great time with this one. There's this amazing continuity of performance. Uh, as they rightly should be, considering that they shot this pretty much dead after the last one, which was X. Uh, but it's it's really, really strange how different in tone this one is. Uh, this one seems more jaunty and a bit more peppier, but it's also much more of a slow burn. Uh, it takes times for the ball to really get rolling, which I think could get to some people in the audience, but... You're coming to this movie because you've seen X, and because you really liked X. And Ty West continues to be 
sort of a chameleon. Because for X, he was doing this Texas Chainsaw Massacre crossed with pornography thing in terms of its aesthetic. But this is very much that, like John said, classic Hollywood with like the pastel colors sweeping score and certain of certain acting choices as well. Um, yeah, I had a really great time with this one. It is a lot more outwardly funny than X, uh, but I just think it was a great, great time with some really just fantastic performances. Mia Goth is just frankly incredible. Uh, I liked this movie, but I get the feeling I liked it less than you guys did. Um, it is the Bates Motel to X's Psycho. Uh, <laughs> that is really what it is. It's sort of the beginning of Pearl, uh, who, if you've seen X, you would know um, the direction that character goes in. Uh, I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as I enjoyed X. It's impeccably made, but it's just not as geared to me and to my tastes. Um, but it is a really well-done, slow-burn character study. Pearl is just not well. From no. long before the movie starts, she's just not well. And it's one of the more, like, the, her relationship with her mother mm. is one of the more interesting relationships in the movie because of that. There's some very interesting things that are explored in her relationships with a lot of people. But her relationship with her mother, who's played by Tandy Wright, is uh, particularly complex and layered as a result of that, that you sort of gradually realise as the movie goes on that a lot of this is born out of the fact, not that uh, not that she is a cruel woman that she's treating her daughter like this, but because she's, like, legitimately scared of her. Um, there are some really wild, campy stuff uh, here. It's, it's framed at the beginning like an old-fashioned movie. Like, it starts with a very sort of, like, Wizard of Oz style overture and intro credits and things like that. And it keeps that for a, for a while, the sound design and the, the big flourishes of the orchestra and everything. It's designed to sort of evoke those old sort of aspirational movies. And then as it goes on, that aesthetic gets slowly corrupted as Pearl's mental state slips. And that's really w well done and really interesting. But uh, I agree with you both that Mia Goth is really a showstopper here. I mean, Pearl as a character is just fascinating. And what this movie does really well, I think, is justify... I mean, it's such a different movie from X, and yet it justifies itself so well as a counterpart yeah. to it. Like, the thematic journey of Pearl versus the journey that Maxine, the main character of X, goes on, those complement each other very well. And I think that... Um, Obviously, watching Pearl, having seen X before, I saw that there. But I think it also works in the other direction. I think it's going to be very interesting to re-watch X having seen Pearl. Um, and it will, I'm really, really hopeful that uh, West can pull off the third instalment of this trilogy, Maxine, because uh, that's going to be a really tight character study um, of these women if he does it right. Uh, something that neither of you mentioned was, um, obviously this, the story of this is that it was written during quarantine in the pandemic. Mm. Um, and that is part of the movie yeah. basically, because it's set in 1918, which is when the influenza pandemic was on. 
And so you get a lot of that, people wearing masks, people worried about contagion, people, you know, sort of quarantining and social distancing. Well, and the other thing, it is, um, it is 1918, and Pearl's payments are German immigrants. Mm. So, And her husband is at war. Yeah, and that that's very uh, interesting, isolating place for Pearl to be in. Yeah, and that is a lot of how that's used, um, the sort of isolation, the idea of sort of... Uh, contagious sickness or signs of sickness being a scary thing there's a great um a great little beat where pearl is in the cinema watching a a movie and people cough in the background and the whole cinema is sort of like "Mm." um i felt that in my bones (laughs) but it's this whole idea of sort of being isolated from the people around you because of illness and fearing connection and human contact as a result like, there's something there that ties into Pearl as a character in a really interesting way. And in addition to Goth, there's a really great supporting cast. Wright is very good as her mother. You get uh, David Corinsweat as a uh, movie projectionist that Pearl um, meets and sort of befriends. You get Emma Jenkins Puro as her sister-in-law. They give yeah. really, really good performances. Like, and these are people I'd never heard of before. I, I hope that they get a real boost out of this because they're very talented. Um, and there are a lot of like cleverly designed parallels in terms of its references to X. Um, not in the sense of like, not in like, say, Star Wars, where they're really beating you over the head with it of, oh, this is the exact same sort of character journey and, and we're going to do all these visual cues and things. But there's just some really nice, interesting sort and, of echoes. And there are certain characters who are similar to ones from X or could be seen as similar. And, and I also like the... And that's interesting. There's this amazing visual continuity as well. Obviously, they're filming in the same places. It's... Not that separate in terms of time it took in between, but... It's fun to see the farm not shitty. Well, it's still kind of shitty, but it's interesting to see it in a new light. Yeah, but it's like 1918 shitty, not broken down shitty. Hmm. Um, I miss the energy of X, though. Um, Like I said, this is just less geared to me. This is just a little too poised. And in compare, like if it was its own standalone thing, weirdly, I think I would appreciate it less um, because of it. It would lose its connection and you know its meaning towards this story that I'm already invested in. But at the same time, I think it would benefit from it in some ways because I wouldn't be so constantly comparing it to yeah. its predecessor. Um, I'm really interested to see where this is going. Uh, obviously, the teaser trailer for Maxine suggests that it's going to Hollywood. Um, yeah, baby. But I, I admit I am hoping for something a little more spirited than this. I'm hoping for something closer to X than Pearl. Uh, I also saw two other movies in the cinemas this week. Uh, first off is 65. It is a science fiction survival movie directed by Scott Beck and Brian Woods. It's actually set 65 million years ago where a human-like alien crashes on earth his name is mills he's played by adam driver and all of the passengers that he was transporting in his vessel are dead save for a young girl named koa played by ariana greenblatt and so he's got to transport her across the wreckage to where the um the other half of the ship basically a broken half as they crashed the other half of the ship is and that's what's got the escape shuttle on it so they've got a 
trek across prehistoric Earth, where, of course, there are dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, this is built on an interesting premise, but there's really not enough to sustain it. I mean, it's a good idea, but it's, it's very interesting in that it seems to be built around a thwarted reveal. It, it starts off with these these um, opening sort of like texts saying, you know, 65 million years ago, long before man took, took his first steps, other races, you know, conquered the stars, you know, that sort of thing. And it's really telling us straight up that this is 65 million years ago. But then when they crash land, and it's a good like 20 minutes into the movie, Adam Driver like sees the first giant dinosaur footprint and it's like close up of his shocked face and then like smash cuts to 65 and then below the million years ago fades in as if we're supposed to be surprised that this is the time frame it's taking place in and it like read to me as if this whole movie was built around that moment and then the studio thought people would get confused so they forced them to put in the opening thing which is upsetting because it would have been a really really cool reveal but instead now it's even just given away on the posters and in the trailers Mm. you know 65 million years ago prehistoric earth received a visitor you know that kind of tagline i've ever since i heard about this movie i've had two thoughts one it feels like a nothing film and two that that title 65 it shits me for no good reason but it's like oh, well, it's it was, very nondescript. Well, it was trying to do the bad robot thing. It was trying to be Cloverfield or, or stuff like that, where it was this mysterious movie that was being produced by Sam Raimi, and it was under the radar for so many years, um, and it was being filmed, but we didn't know anything about it until the trailer came out. And it just it doesn't really like they've really scuttled any surprise that they could have gotten out of that. Like if you didn't show the dinosaurs in the trailer. If you didn't reveal that it was 65 million years ago, I mean, there's, there's a, it still wouldn't be a great movie, but it would have a really great moment in it. Mm. And it doesn't have that. And it's really ridiculous that these aliens, quote unquote, are aliens because they're just humans. They're just so human like. They speak English. It can't be their own language that they're speaking because it's literally part of the plot that, um, Adam Driver speaks English, but one of the other, but the little girl doesn't. And so there's this sort of language divide. Um, so it really draws attention to the fact that he's speaking English by doing that. Um, I mean, they, he uses the metric system, for Christ's sake. Like, <laughs> how are we... Like, and this is all, like, 65 million years ago. And I was thinking the whole way through, like, oh, okay. So they're going to do, like, spoiler alert, like, the prehistoric... The, the Battlestar Galactica thing, the prehistoric man thing that... Actually, we're seeded from an alien race. Well, no, it doesn't. No, um, that's not how this goes. Uh, Adam Driver's journey to Earth is just a little blip. Um, it has no impact whatsoever in the creation of humanity or, or evolution or any of that stuff. And like, it's not like he's a human from the future. No, or- no, no. This movie is like he starts the movie on his home planet is 65 million years ago when he gets to Earth. He hasn't traveled in time. He just is an alien that looks exactly like a human 65 million years ago. And then that there's no relationship between his species and ours. <laughs> like it's. They could yeah. have done so um, much. The dino survival stuff's 
okay. I mean, it's hitting the same beats a lot that you've seen in pretty much every other dinosaur survival movie. Um, but it is kind of Logan, but dinosaurs. It's the grumbly man who's lost everything, but has his heart thawed by the, uh, the precocious girl who can't speak, uh, can't speak English in this case. Um, there's some decent, like, thriller moments, thriller moments, a couple of good, like, the dinosaur's not there, and then suddenly it's there kind of moments um, that they pull off. And it gets scope out of a modest budget. Like, this is a $45 million movie, and it does not look like it. It looks much more expensive than that. Um, but it also explains why, when they bring in a really interesting obstacle in the third act, they do very, very little with it, because it would re- would have required a much bigger budget. Um uh, I'm not going to say it out loud because we don't edit it anymore, but do you mind if I text you guys and tell you what that third act obstacle is? I don't mind. Okay. I'm probably not going to watch it. Yikes! <laughs> yeah, and that's a really cool <laughs> yeah. idea, but they don't they don't have the budget to pull that off. Damn, that oh. sucks. <laughs> um, Really great performances, though. Way better than they need to be. Um, Adam Driver is really brilliant, and so is Greenblatt, and you get uh, a very small role in a few flashbacks um, with uh, Chloe Coleman, who is an actress, that uh, a young actress who I've seen in a few things now, and she has always been quite strong. She was the um, the little girl in the Dave Bautista family comedy, My Spy, mm. uh, and she was uh, in Avatar, Way of the Water. She was in um, that Owen Wilson movie, Marry Me. She was the little girl in one of my favourite movies last year, Gunpowder Milkshake. No, one of my favourite movies from two years ago now. Right, we're in 2023. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really, it's a movie that can be described in a lot of ways as a great idea that got thwarted through execution. Uh, I also saw in the cinemas this week... Um, the last of the 2022 movies I needed to see before I made my list, uh, Living. It's a drama directed by Oliver Hermanis. It's based on the 1952 Japanese film Ikiru by uh, director Akira Kurosawa. And it's set in 1953 London, where a mid-level bureaucrat uh, named Rodney Williams, played by Bill Nye, uh, is sort of just going through life in a daze. He's stodgy. He's trapped. Um He's just, you know, confined in this boring humdrum existence. And he doesn't even seem to know it until he gets a terminal diagnosis and finds out he only has six months to live. And he tries to reckon with that and with sort of the lost potential of his life while trying to figure out what to do with his final days, figure out how to live, basically. But the thing of it is, is he's a Bill Nye character. He's not very good at that. <laughs> um Look, this is this is a gorgeous film. It's really beautiful and bittersweet. It's introspective and quiet. It's really so well written and observed, uh, impeccably constructed, really. And it's really just a character study of Williams. the The intro of his character tells us so much. You spend like the first ten minutes of this movie not with him, but with his co-workers. It's like a new guy. It's his first day at the office. Um, he's like their supervisor, and you know, he gets on the train and all of these other guys are in the train compartment and they're all sitting there talking and, you know, all, all of that stuff. And then um, they're like, oh, you know, make sure you're on your best behaviour. Mr. Williams is, you know, not a guy that takes things lightly, da-da-da. And then that's sort of building him up. And then it's like, oh, 
we're at his stop and then out through the window as the train slows, Bill Nye just sort of slides into frame as the train Mm. stops and you see him out the window and he's just sitting, he's just all sort of hunched up like a gargoyle with a, with a hat over his brow, like very Scrooge like. And then they, he just sort of stares at them, like tips his hat very slightly and then just walks off to get on the train. And there's this very long pause. And then the new guy's like, is he coming in here? And then the others are like, oh, no, he never, like, sits with us. (laughs) So it just tells you so much about who this character is and how sort of trapped inside of himself he is. Uh, And it unwraps him as the story goes. And through that, it sort of interrogates society, uh, especially the sort of post-war sort of conservative, stiff upper lip version of British society and human connection within it. And there is this whole thread of human connection getting sort of trapped by life and getting, you know, run down by the grind of the everyday. The work that he does, that Williams and his team do in this council office, is like, it's Kafka-esque, the bureaucracy of it, because it's like designed basically to be circular. Like these petitioners come in, they want to build a a playground. They go to his department, but they need something from another department. They go to that Mm. department, but they need something from another department to go to that department. And it just goes this chain, this chain, this chain, until finally you get to the end of the chain, and that person says they need something from the very first department if they're going to do anything. But when they go back to the first department they still need the thing from from the second second department like it's designed to sort of be this thing that just sort of putters out with no beginning and no end and Mm. and it just is representative of this just slog and um it's juxtaposed with the journey of williams as a character his drive for meaning and like this is bill nye's show this is like truly a magnificent performance. This is probably the best performance he's ever given in his, in a career of fantastic performances. Um, alongside Ian McKellen and John Lithgow, Bill Nye is one of my top three favourite actors, and he is just so phenomenal here. This was his first Oscar nomination. Uh, I'm sorry, Bill, uh, Brendan Fraser, but it should have been his first win. Like, because I'm looking at the trailer for The Whale. And it's a similar story. It's a guy dying and trying to make things right before he dies. But whereas Brendan Fraser is sort of like doing the capital A Oscar bait acting, the screaming and the slobbering and the crying, Bill Nye's just so much more textured. And yeah, and it's just, it really is just like a truly phenomenal performance of the kind that bowls you over. Um I think that the movie itself lasts a little too long. Uh, it has a bit of Return of the King syndrome in the last 20 minutes or so that I feel like if they had cut five of those minutes, it would be a better movie for it. But it's brilliantly filmed by Hermanus. He has this sort of classicism to the style that he uses that really suits the material. Um, and it has a beautiful string-heavy Emily Levane Farouche score. Um which is like gives some really nice backing to it. Uh, it's just a yeah, it's a movie that I really really liked and did a did a lot and took a lot. It's quiet and clever and really emotionally affecting. Do we want to talk about the rabbit? I feel like we have to address the rabbit. Yeah, it's that the rabbit is not from this movie. There is a stuffed rabbit in a scene in this movie, but it's not attached to Bill mm. Nye's character, and it's um and it's not that rabbit. It's not that kind of rabbit, but. 
Yes, Bill Nye. Sp- Bill Nye spent the whole Oscars red carpet carrying a small stuffed rabbit around. Um, and the internet was abuzz with what is this rabbit? Like he kept posing with it, um, you know, pointing at it and taking photos with it. This, and, is, his, um, this finally- is his explanation when he was finally asked yeah. about it and was willing to give, uh, give an answer. My granddaughter's schedule intensified and I was charged with rabbit sitting responsibilities. I wasn't prepared to just leave her unattended in a hotel room. The stakes are too high. Which is already such a Bill Nye statement. Like, my granddaughter's schedule intensified. Like, but when you get to the stakes are too high, that's what makes it, like, God-tier Bill Nye. <laughs> I mean, the man the was, stakes are too high. The man was going to the... the stakes o- are too high should be the name of his autobiography. The man was going to the Oscars. <laughs> It's like, it's such a Bill Nye thing. Mm. Oh, and that's like top tier granddad stuff yeah. too. Like, that's a great story for that little girl for the rest of her life. He can also um, use that to embarrass her. Yeah. But can, can you imagine having Bill Nye as your granddad? Like, how cool would that be? <laughs> um. Anyways, at home, I also watched You Don't Know Jack. It's a biopic. Directed by Barry Levinson. It's an HBO TV movie based on the non-fiction book Between the Dying and the Dead, Dr. Jack Kevorkian's Life and the Battle to Legalize Euthanasia. Written by Neil Nicol and Harry Wiley. Uh, it's the story of American doctor and euthanasia campaigner Jack Kevorkian, played by Al Pacino, who assisted in the suicides of 130 of his patients in the 1990s. Uh, and the legal system's attempts to stop him. Um, this is a really compelling movie, but it's also frustrating because, you know, I believe that a person has the right to end their own life with dignity. I believe in, in euthanasia as an option for lucid, uh, terminally ill people. And um, the movie definitely shares my opinion. It has nothing but sympathy for Kevorkian, but of course... Uh, we all know, like, even if you don't know the story of Jack Kevorkian, you know it kind of ended with success no. for him because here we are, you know, 25 years later. Um, but uh, Kevorkian, even though the movie has sympathy for them, for him, he's nonetheless a really flawed messenger for his cause. He's neurotic. He's tin-eared. He has no eye for PR. He keeps putting his foot in his mouth. And he's directly and intentionally picking legal fights in an attempt to set precedent. I mean, this isn't a spoiler because it's real life, but Jack Kevorkian eventually filmed himself not assisting in a suicide, but injecting a patient with a lethal dose of morphine and then gave it to 60 minutes. He wanted to be charged with murder so that he could um, make the argument in court representing himself um, that it was euthanasia and that that was not murder and should be legal. Never represent yourself in court. Yeah. Um, but it's an extremely effective character study. It, it shades in his motivations, what's driving him, uh, and it takes you along with his frustration with the system. And there's really affecting moments where you see these people who are really, like, their lives are hell and they don't want to be here anymore. And, you know, there's this argument that um, that is made in the movie that is, is a really compelling one, which is if a person is unconscious and suffering and we, we have the ability to just take them off life support. But if a person 
is conscious and asks to be taken off life support, they won't do it. They'll just let him suffer because that's apparently the more moral option. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, like, and I know it's more complicated than that, but, it, you know, it, it's really frustrating because that's it. You know, some people, it is possible to live too long. Um, and that is something that I think that as a society, which is so obsessed with prolonging our lives and, and um, you know, so afraid of dying that it, we're so uncomfortable with that idea. But it's something that this movie tackles head on. And Al Pacino is just magnificent. It's a full body transformation into this like small, mousy little terrier of a man who, when you get him in front of a camera or in front of a jury, will just like go off. Um, it's a really good performance. And he's, I mean, he's done a lot of his best late career work on HBO between uh, this and, um, you know, Angels in America and some of the other stuff that he's done there. Until like playing his, real people, yeah. Until um, till really the Irishman. I mean, that was his most respectable work of the last twenty five years or so. Uh, but you get a pretty strong perf- a supporting cast, even though they are largely wasted. Um, Susan Sarandon, John Goodman, and Danny Houston don't really have big enough roles to justify their presence in this movie. Um, but you get a very good Brenda Vaccaro supporting performance as Al Pacino's sister. And you also get a one-scene performance of Adam Driver in an early role as one of the patients. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a really good movie. It's a real frustrating watch, but it's a compelling watch. And as a character study of this man, it's who I admit I hadn't read very much about before, but... Uh, like um, HBO at the same time they put out this movie, they also did a documentary on him. Um, and I put that on the list now because it's, it's he's a really interesting, flawed, frustrating, sympathetic guy in a way that at least as this movie represents him. I don't know, maybe if it, who knows, you know, I'm always sort of reluctant to make these broad sweeping statements about people I've never heard of before. There might be something lurking in his past. I don't know, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's. Fine, fine film. And um, if you want to watch it in Australia, it's available on Foxtel now. But lastly for this week, I watched a pro shot from the Globe Theatre of Romeo and Juliet, uh, which is directed by Dominic Dromgoul, and it is based on the William Shakespeare play of the same name. It's set in 1500s Verona, Italy. You all know this story. It's about feuding families, the Montagues, the Capulets, uh, and these teenagers in those families. Romeo Montague, played here by Tamiwa Edom, and Juliet Capulet, played by Ellie Kendrick. And they fall in love, and of course, it ends poorly. Um, this was really the recording that opened my interest in Shakespeare, uh, when I did my course that I had to do for my literature degree in uni, I wasn't particularly looking forward to it, but I decided to just buy pro shots of the um, of the plays that we were studying because I wanted to, like, see them performed rather than just reading the script. And this was the first one that I saw, and it really opened my love of Shakespeare. And it still is a strong version of the play, but I, I'm much more familiar with Shakespeare at this point, and it's definitely done better elsewhere. This is a very traditional, very conservative adaptation. Um, But it is interesting to see the focus that they do here. It sort of emphasises the teen dramatics and the teen angst of it in a way that seems almost like it's intended to be satirical. Like it is sort of winking about these teenagers 
you know, thinking that the, all of this drama, their own personal drama, is the most important thing. These broad, sweeping proclamations of love to people they've only just met. Um, it has a bit of a, a of a sly smile to it um, that I found an interesting element. And uh, there is, through the staging and through the performance of um, Miranda Foster, an increased depth to Lady Capulet, who, just through implication in this performance, seems to suggest that um, she was once in a very similar situation to Juliet and just did what her parents asked her to instead. Um, but there's the fool in this play and there's the way they do it. The performance of the actor who plays him is horrific. Like it is so destructive to the pace to basically how serious, how seriously you can take the story. Like it just is like, like the play running into a brick wall every time he comes on screen. It is terrible. And, uh, it doesn't really maintain its energy for the whole three hour unabridged performance of this play. The cast are hit or miss too. I mean, Kendrick is a decent Juliet. You guys would know Kendrick. She is the, uh, the actress who told Hodor to hold the door. Um, but, uh, you also get a very good Philip Cumbus, Ian Redford and Miranda Foster, as I already mentioned her, uh, Eden, I think overcommits as Romeo and, uh, some of the other supporting cast, like were, Rawiri, Paratine, and Andrew Vincent, full flat. Um, what I, the, all of the Globe Pro shots I've seen do this. They do like, the whole cast comes out at the end, and after they do this vow, this bow, sorry, um, they do this like jaunty little jig. <laughs> like, like the, the little band, the minstrel band, like plays an old, like Shakespearean tune, and they all like sing along and dance along. I don't know, it's kind of fun. Um, but there is a lot to this play, and they have a good idea. It's just that the staging is, I think, a little wobbly. Mm. Because a lot of those um, more stage-bound stagings of plays like Romeo and Juliet in particular can be very underwhelming. Well, I don't know. I've seen plenty that have done it really well. I just think that this version, they're just they're very committed, and this goes along with a lot of the Globe performances I've seen. Some of them work better than others. They're very committed to doing doing the text without changing anything, mm. you know? Very committed to literal representations of the text in unabridged forms. And it leaves the They very rarely experiment and they very rarely take b- big swings. Yeah. Um, and for this particular version, it just didn't work as well as I wanted it to. That's fair. Uh, so that's you, Don? Yep. So... We've had quite the busy week. Uh, we thought we'd be done with our list of things to watch, but we were not. Uh, so I'll get us started. The first movie we watched was one I've been interested in checking out, but it wasn't at the forefront. Uh, Orphan First Kill, uh, which is a prequel to the film Orphan from 2009. After escaping from an Estonian psychiatric facility, Lena Klammer travels to America by impersonating the missing daughter of a wealthy family called the Albrights. Uh, uh, taking on the name Esther, uh, the character is played by Isabel Furman, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, when her mask starts to slip, uh, she's put against a mother who will protect her family from the murderous child at any 
cost. Have you seen the first Orphan? No, but I know the yeah. twist. And this movie is upfront about what the twist is. Yeah. We're not going to get into what that twist is, but they do a lot in the movie to, yeah, actually present that visually speaking. Uh, John, say a short yeah. piece about it. I really enjoyed this. There's a pivot that the movie takes at the halfway point, which makes everything kick into high gear, and I love that. And I was smiling from ear to ear for the rest of the movie after that. This movie lives and dies by the performance of Isabel Furman, and she hasn't lost step when it comes to the character of Esther. Obviously, she's she was 23 when they filmed this, so they had to do some tricks with the filming to make it seem like she was that little and if you're looking for it you can see where those tricks happen but it's still an amazing feat of filmmaking what they were able to do and major props to the three young girls that they got as the body doubles for certain scenes all of them work in concert to create this character of esther who i think is a fantastic horror villain because her pathology is so interesting. And I have to give some praise to the other actors here. Julia Stiles is really good here. She comes at this movie with a lot of energy and passion, and that is very much appreciated. And Matthew Finlan is also really interesting as the brother, uh, Esther's brother in this. The He's a young man, he's trying to figure out what's wrong with Esther. And that's very interesting as well. Because this is the first time the character has done something like this. So there's a learning curve here. It's it's not as practiced or precise as uh, what Esther does in the first film. Yeah, because she's... She has of, to impersonate somebody. She's impersonating someone, and that comes with her making some mistakes about the characterization a couple times she's got an accent where the original esther didn't so she has to explain she has to find um she has to find explanations for things and that's really fun and sort of goes to show why she would later just be an orphan in her later escapades because it seems far easier Um, yeah this is 13 years after the first. Who's Who honestly saw this coming? Who expected not, not only another orphan movie, but an orphan prequel? Mm. Uh, the the tricks they do to make Furman seem like she hasn't, hasn't aged are honestly really, really well done. Obviously, you can see it. You could see that she's older than the character is. But that still works because of how she's able to perform the role. That's all very interesting. I I had a good time with this one. Probably a better time with this one than I did the first, mainly because this one does something rather different. That pivot that John speaks about really helps this one find its own footing and find its own place in the story. I don't know how more of these they can do because, one, it's a huge undertaking to make Furman seem like a little girl and it has real potential for diminishing returns um Mm. the pivot they make in this one prevents this one from being diminished but there's only so much you can actually do yeah uh I had a really great time with it though 
Um, all the performances are fantastic. It's shot very well. It's a lot. It's a lot more stylish than the first. It's a lot more willing to engage with the the slash or horror of it than the first one was because the first one had to be a slow burn because you didn't know the twist until it was revealed. Like this one, they can just have that shit out in the open. That's a fun energy for it to have. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a worthy prequel to the first. Uh, what did we watch that one on? Uh, I think we used the VPN for it, but you can rent it and purchase it on Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Telstra Fetch, all the regular stuff you can do that for. The next thing we watched, <sighs> Beavis and Butthead do the universe. Wasn't my call, but here I am. Uh, Beavis and Butthead do the universe is, of course, the most recent Beavis and Butthead film. Uh, it is tangentially a sequel to the first, in as much as that Beavis and Butthead has continuity. Um, after a creative judge sentences uh, teenage delinquents Beavis and Butthead, both uh, performed vocally by Mike Judge, uh, they're sentenced to space camp. Um, when they are, they are sent into space after that through to stupidity and bullshit, uh, they are sent 24 years into the future when they end up in a wormhole. Uh, the, dear, the duo engage with the modern world uh, in predictable method, in predictable ways. They miss these iPhones, embark on the ongoing quest to score, and become targets of the deep state. <laughs> um, John, say a piece on it. I actually really liked this. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> no, the the script is actually it's not great. It's it's not great, but it actually has moments of brilliance in terms of the wordplay and because characters when they interact with Beavis and Butthead, at points they realize just how asinine and stupid these boys are. They the references to nineties media like touched by an angel. That really got a kick out of me, having watched a bunch of it. Most of it, actually. Uh, and there's quite a few references to it. And the story is very fun as well. The fact that they get sent into our modern day and have to... Interact you know, with that. Handle themselves and all of that. The fact that they've been put on this giant quest to go back through the wormhole or a small portal in order to fix the time continu space-time continuum... But they just keep getting distracted by other shit. So the people who no, have... No, I don't think they were distracted. I'm not going to I just it. think they weren't listening. <laughs> so the people who are putting them on this quest have to keep making it just easier and easier and easier because they're just not getting it. And I think that's fun. The This is very much Beavis and Butted, though. It's kind of episodic in terms of the places that they go to. There's a lot of interesting things that it says about the modern day. One of them is that they go to a college campus, which is the only part that really falls flat for me, because it's the obvious shit. But it then turns into, oh no no, it's not necessarily making fun of eh, I people go that on college far. campuses. It's just that Beavis and Butthead are really stupid, really stupid, and missing the mm. point. No, I do think it and takes pretty low hanging fruit, sure. stupid blows at modern college. And university. Oh, yes. 
To be fair, American universities has a lot more of that stuff than Australia. Like, it's actually, like, if it is the stuff I'm thinking of, if you're, that you're talking about, that's actually a lot more present on, it's more of a real thing on American college campuses than it is on this, that we experience. Yeah, I just, it irked me. Uh, this is Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) <laughs> there's there's a line here in this movie. We're in jail, Beavis. This kicks ass. Yeah, the youth pastor always said we'd be here someday. We finally made it. Um, but yeah, this That's is a great. This line. is Beavis and Butthead. These characters and frankly, f- franchise at this point is from a bygone decade. And while there is some amusement to be had, it's deeply stupid. It's deeply dense. Acknowledging it in your script doesn't make it smart. Um, although I did have to chuckle when uh they address the multiverse and the two be the the main Beavis and Butthead we follow are the stupidest of them, and the yeah. two Beavis and Buttheads that they meet are the smartest. But as Smart Beavers puts it, we're still not that bright. Um, yeah. and, and that in itself is somewhat amusing to me. Like, the animation is of the style that it once was. I would argue it's probably a bit worse. It, they, they made this one on the cheap. Um, some of the stuff... Are you, I, I think it's as good as the... As good or slightly better than... Yeah, Beavis probably and in America. moments, but you can tell that they weren't running with a big budget on this. Um, I don't know... I'm just. I think this really all comes down to your, your. The two of you have a differing reception to what Beavis and Butthead as a concept are doing. I, I'm not completely down on it. I, I like the Can I tell you- stuff. That stuff amuses me because I am a little idiot sometimes. But without looking, I would like the two of you to guess Beavis and Butthead do the universe's rock tomatoes. Oh, rating. fucking dismal. Sixty-nine. Pardon? Dismal. It got to 69 when it premiered. And it went down from that, what, I'm assuming. What would you guess, Harley? 40s. Because it's pretty rare that things go under that. 97. Get fucked. I'm showing them now, my phone with the number on it, listeners. 97. It critical or audience? Critical. 84% audience. Fart knocker, critics consensus, fart knockers beware, Beavis and Butthead are back, and they're just as stupidly hilarious, or hilariously stupid as ever. What is wrong with you people? The point of the movie is how dumb no, these people are. No, I get that, yeah. but it's like, I thought humour had evolved since then. Yeah, but Harley, the point of the- Time magazine raves, may they always have a bounteous supply of TP for their bungholes. It's like it's like you're living in an alternate universe, isn't it, Harley? <laughs> I, I get that Harley, stupidity is the point. When, when you that's say not an excuse, when you say when you said earlier, just because you have in your script that the script is stupid doesn't make you smart. That's not what the movie's doing. That is an incorrect assessment. The script is actually really interesting. It takes the characters in interesting directions. It gives them out. But they don't take yeah, it. Yeah, I know. The script is smarter than they are. Anything is smarter than they are. I'm, I just... It's no different. And I get how that can be appealing for people. And I'm I'm not above it. I laughed. But it's... 
You forget, though, that Beavis and Butthead original, the original was acclaimed as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I suppose I'm just past that. I laughed at the Cornholio stuff in the prison. Yeah, so they go to prison, and then this guy asks Beavis what to get rid con- of these pills. What does pills. Beavis consume? Beavis eats them all. Because it is either... Turns into the Great Cornholio. Uh, and drugs. This guy who... Or... The warden of the too prison... Too much sugar that... Thinks that... Triggers the transformation. Like, he's been on a Touched by an Angel binge. So he thinks that Beavis and Butthead are these messengers. That they should treat the people in this prison better because Cornholio starts a riot. Or it starts a... You guys there? Yeah. Oh, you guys froze just for a second. Okay. Anyway. And starts this whole thing. That is the kind of thing that could only happen in this. And it's just... I just had to laugh with the Touch by an Angel thing. How it showed up twice. Just absolutely bizarre. Yeah, uh... But anyway, you can find this on Paramount Plus. As well as the more recent... Uh, series that they did. Because, yes, this is the thing they bring back from MTV. Not the music videos, but Beavis and Butthead. Um, but yeah, if you enjoy Beavis and Butthead, you'll probably enjoy this. I'm just looking at how he's still reeling. Look at him. <laughs> he can't believe it. I am not ashamed or embarrassed by anything that I enjoy, and I really enjoyed this. Is it going to be on my list? Hell no. Absolutely not. But... I can't lie to you. I'm not going to do that. That would be dishonest. But we also watched another kind of deeply stupid, but also a better, better movie yeah, than this. Yeah, this one is Dave orders made of magnitude mate. more creative. Dave, an artist who has yet to make a significant... We just say that title again because Harley Dave sort of... Dave made a maze. Dave, yeah. It's actually on my list, I know it. Yeah, I just good. <laughs> knew that lis- listeners wouldn't have uh, yeah. wouldn't have heard it. He builds a fort in his living room out of pure frustration, only to wind up trapped in it. This is brilliant. It The creativity is insane, but I'll let Holly speak about it. Uh, the script isn't great, but that's not what you're here for. Um, the script is serviceable. It gets what needs done done. The production design, how well they staged everything is frankly miraculous. I don't know how they did it. They constructed what seems to be an entire world out of cardboard. and Cardboard that they got from dumpster diving. And they do things with cardboard that I never thought possible, weirdly. I Just the amount of creativity on screen at any point after the... Like, when you would... When you see the apartment, the cardboard fort itself from the outside is still rather impressive an effort but when you go inside much on the inside it is much vaster and much more interesting and dense and impossible it's impossible hmm. i don't know how they did this it's interesting because they were they had a studio space that they were filming oh, they, in they would have had but to. they couldn't build all of the sets all at the same time. So the longest lifespan for one of these sets was 14 hours. Mm. And then they would tear it down and build something else because they had to keep moving. And the creativity is just insane here. The The story and the script and the character relationships are decent. They're not what you're going to rave about, though. You've got good performances from Mir- Mira Rohit, 
Kamhani, Nick Thune, Adam Bush, James Urbi- Urbanak. James Urbaniak. Yeah. He's got real... James Urbaniak. He's got real Reese Darby in this one. He's got real Reese yeah, Darby energy in this. He is a... He's a filmmaker. He's doing a documentary on Dave's maze and everything. And he tries to force people into these talking head segments where he asks them how they feel. And these people are just traumatized. So they're just thousand yards staring. And he's just trying to get anything usable out of it. And he gets people to re-perform their trauma in order to get it on camera, which is just hilarious. But yeah, the sets here are incredible. The maze itself is a work of insane genius. I'm trying to find... And this is a horror movie. This is a horror film. There are deaths (laughs) here. But when as it shows you in the trailer... When someone gets their head cut off, instead of blood spurting out of it's their neck, streamers and it's crate paper. Yeah, streamers and crate it's, paper and felt and shit. And, and it's, it's just hilarious. Um, it's en- endlessly creative. The set design is brilliant. The places that they take the cardboard into are insane. There's a minotaur running around the maze. That's not really a twist, but the minotaur in- itself is kind of scary in a really interesting way and the movie's really about not letting not getting too not letting yourself go when it comes to being creative having people there who can pull you back Mm. and in order to make something that makes sense and is good and that's a really interesting theme for a movie to make because it's very clear that that's sort of what happened behind the scenes, that they had this idea and they really just focused on trying to make it as best as they could. And that's what they've done. So it has... I'm just trying to look at the budget and what they ended up with in box office. And I'm looking at Wikipedia here, so I'm not sure where they got this information. But it looks like less than $500,000 that they spent on it. And the box office that they got... Because it only had a very limited uh, time in... Smaller, more indie theaters, uh, $34,117. Sorry, my mistake. Uh, it wasn't 14 hours, which was the average lifespan of one of the cardboard rooms. It was four hours. Jesus. They were moving out of clip. Yeah, because a lot of the cardboard they used was scrap cardboard from an American apparel factory in LA. And the producer thought they had more than enough to last the full length of the shoot. They ran out three weeks later and found that the company was no longer willing to give the scrap away. <laughs> but they were shooting next to Solar City, which was willing to let the crew dumpster dive for all of the cardboard that they needed. The vast majority of the cardboard was returned to the same dumpsters for recycling. The production didn't pay for any cardboard. It's like... They paid for people's time. It is truly an impressive creation, the maze. Yeah. Like, it must have been all hands on deck building those sets. I mean, you, you, you've seen the trailer, Lawson, and you've seen how creative they got. Yeah. They, and this was like 2017, so it was a long time ago I did my assessment yeah. Yeah. for this. But yeah, it was like nominated for a, um, a fantasy award, I think, which is how I got turned on. They also it. do this amazing sequence with forced perspective. And like, yeah. the script... That's just like, The script is weak, but the filmmaking ideas present or what really carries it forward it's like nothing you've ever seen before it's like if it's like 
the creativity behind Skinamarink, but actually doing something, um, instead of just resting on concept alone. Mm. But yeah, we found this on Shudder, and you can watch it mm. there. We also watched another Shudder film, a Shudder original named Wounded, A Wounded Fawn. A serial killer, played by Josh Rubin, brings an unsuspecting new victim, played by Sarah Lind, to his weekend getaway to add another body to his ever-growing body count. She's buying into his faux charms at the beginning, and he's eagerly lusting for blood. What could possibly go wrong? This is really interesting. This was on my to-watch list, because I really enjoyed the trailer, and I had heard things that it talks about Greek myth and all of that stuff, but I'll let Harley say his piece uh, before I get into Um, mine. We all have great things to say about Werewolves Within, which is mm-hmm. the, my second favorite movie of 2021. Yeah, like that movie was fantastic. It's a Josh Rubin directed film. Um, but we also really like where Josh Rubin shows up in films, like particularly horror, because that seems to be a particular interest to him. Uh, Harley and I spoke about Scare Me yeah. last year, and we really no, loved year before that. last yeah. now. And, yeah. and that was really interesting. So when I heard about Wounded Fawn, like, oh, sorry, I could have sworn there was another uh, horror movie that he was in. You must be thinking of some of his college humor skits. Yeah, because he's always had kind of like a surreal uh, touch for his creativity. As I've said, I am afraid of owls. owls. Um, (laughs) But A Wounded Fawn is very, very creative. Um, It's, like Scammy, really a feminist piece. And it's very interesting that Josh Rubin as an actor, is picking out these specific projects to get attached to. Because it would feel like if an actor with less self-awareness would not bring as good a performance as Josh Rubin does in these films. I'm not going to spoil Scammy, but safe to say, in Wounded Fawn, his character is a serial killer. That's plainly obvious from the top. That's in the basic synopsis of the film. And that's where a lot of the tension and comes from. He is very, very good at this. He is able to play really terrifying when he needs to, and really pathetic otherwise. And yeah. he's able to turn on a superficial charm, but it never moves past superficial. Uh, and he's just a really great performer because of that awareness he has for character and staging. Um. Again, this is a someone who's moved from a comedy space into horror, and that transition has worked particularly well because a good scare is structured the same as a joke. Um, you're presented with a scenario, and then the scenario gets shifted and changed in a way you don't expect. It, that's the basic magic trick both horror and comedy perform. But I love the discussion of Greek myth here. It's the myth of the Irenes, the the Furies. Uh, Tisiphone, Atropos, and Megara. I have always found the myth of the the three-in-one very compelling, and this particular version of the story is outstanding. Um, I do have to give real props to the director here, because what Travis Stevens is able to do here is create this real giallo energy. Like, uh, Ruben's character, Bruce, Bruce, his whole thing and his method is like this metallic claw thing that he wears under his hand so he can like claw out the throat 
And that's a very, very giallo touch. And the the way that the film is shot, what they shot it on, it looks like it's film. It's got like heavy grain, very, very precise uh, positioning of the camera and shot composition. Because you could tell that they weren't, they didn't waste any time on this film. The precision is just fantastic. Uh, I don't, have we seen any of Steven's work before? Because I have definitely heard of some of his other projects. Um, I heard of Jacob's Wife. Um, no, I haven't really seen much of his other work, but I'd be definitely interested in checking that out. Uh, yeah, John? I loved this. For all of the reasons that Holly has stated, it's discussion of Greek myth and how that ties into this serial killer who preys on women. The story of the ironies, the fact that they go after men who who do violence to women. And that's really interesting. It becomes a sort of psychological horror in the sense that you don't you're not actually sure if what you're seeing is actually happening because of the mental state of Josh Rubin's character. And that's really interesting. This movie is very set in a very Giallo Dario Argento style, and that carries the movie for a long time, and then the movie goes batshit insane, and you're already there for it. I, I, we just it, have to say that its vibe is very specific. Yeah. Um, it's Not everyone's gonna like this. It's a lot more niche than a lot of the other projects Ruben has been in, and probably a little more niche than Stevens has done before, judging by what I what I can look at from his filmography, but I would definitely recommend yeah, checking it out. Yeah, this is very much... This is def- definitely an art film. Mm. Sorry, this is definitely an art film, and it has all of that to it. Sarah Lind is really good as Meredith, the woman that he's taken to this weekend getaway, because she's seeing every red flag. The charming veneer slips away the moment she gets in his car. And his hand lingers too long on her. That, you can see that she's putting the pieces together. It, it's very barbarian in that mm. way. But then the differences it makes is also very interesting. Josh Rubin is an actor who I'm always happy to see. I've watched a lot of his stuff with College Humor. A lot of the stuff he's done on Dropout recently. I referenced earlier... The Woman Who's Afraid of Owls, which is a college humor skit that... It'd be like it over a decade feel old. Like a, it, it doesn't feel like a comedy skit. It just feels like a really interesting short film. It's like legitimately and distressing. I think that is... It, yeah, it gets legitimately distressing later on into it. And that's a fantastic performance from him. And he brings that kind of energy here. His face is elastic. And what they're able to get out of him is really fun, including a post-credits sequence, which finds him taking it to the absolute hill. Pearl-esque. In a very Pearl-esque way, which I enjoyed. Like, it... it yeah. uh, but this movie is wildly creative in terms of its depictions of things. The final act of the movie is a pretty long final act, but it really hammers home... The messages about predatory men yeah. and the comeuppance that should be coming to uh, them. Sa- and that's really, really Sarah fun. Lind is also fantastic. Yeah, she's really good here. 
And yeah, there, there were moments where your mind tricks you into thinking that this was made in the 60s and 70s. Mm. But then a piece of dialogue happens or someone uses an iPhone and it reminds you, no, this is set This is a today. modern movie in a lot of ways. And it's a modern parable too. And that is really interesting because very much like the visions he sees, Josh Rubin's Bruce is a bird of prey. Mm. And that is a visual... That's visual symbolism that's carried on throughout the film. Trent Stevens is Travis Stevens. Similar to Ty Yeah, Travis Stevens is very similar to Ty West, not in terms of complete skill at being able to do a style, but he has an interesting visual eye. I'm interested in seeing some of the other films he's right. done. Oh, Woman on the Third Floor, which features Phil Brooks, who is an actor I'm interested in, and Jacob's Wife, which is a vampire story. I'm interested in seeing both of those as well. But I really enjoyed this. This movie was right up my alley. Have you seen the trailer for it? Yes. Yeah, it's on my list. Good. I, I, I yeah. do really think it's up your alley as well. I was just fascinated by the trailer for this and by the poster for this. Uh, and there's an interesting... I was absorbed by like the, the folk horror vibe that the, the trailer and the poster has. Folk- yeah, it's got a serious... Po- yeah. Yeah, it has a folk horror vibe and a very interesting score by Val. Uh-huh. V-A-A-A-L. That'd be more like Val. And they Val. Their score for this is fascinating, mm. and they go for it when there are moments where they need to. And it's really, really well done. Yep, so you could find a wounded fawn on Shudder, because this one was made for the service. Uh, so, Lawson, you have a pit take. I do. Let me just close my window again, because I opened it after I finished my section, because it's so bloody hot here. The city we live in, listeners, has a heatwave warning out until later today. It legit um, sucks out there. But, uh, yes, I went to the theatre uh, and I saw Hamilton, uh, the stage musical, of course, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's based on the, bio- on the biography Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow, and it follows the rise and fall of Alexander Hamilton, the U.S. founding father and first secretary of the treasury. Uh, and really, what's to be said about this that hasn't already been said? This is a phenomenal achievement. It's sort of tailor-made for me, and it's sort of like history, politics, musical thing. And also really um, tight it, dancing. But it's really um, a well-done translation of American history through a, a modern lens, and it's sort of a, a reclaiming of the myth of American origin, you know, the sort of origin myth of America um, with colorblind casting, with the variety of music that is reflective of sort of the diversity of modern day America. That's all done in a really interesting and, and I think very successful way. Hamilton is just such a fascinating character. He is this admirable, frustrating, sort of, you know, incredibly flawed guy I mean, he has such a dramatic story. It works for this kind of treatment. And so is his ultimate nemesis, Aaron Burr, who I didn't know as much about going in other than sort of the big bullet points of, um, yeah, uh huh, of, uh, of his story. 
but um, I was really taken with how empathetic this portrayal of him is and how contextualised he is as a character. There's a sort of twinship between him and Hamilton that I found quite interesting. And look, there's just a lot of material going on here. If there is a flaw, it's that. The Revolutionary War stuff in the first half before the intermission is a Cliff Notes version of the Revolutionary War. If you're unfamiliar, it's breakneck and a little hard to follow. And I know that because uh, my mother and I went and saw it together. She doesn't know anything about the American Revolutionary War. And she was having a hard time keeping up for that first half. But it also Um, turns out to be very long. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the longer half. Um, But after the intermission, it gets to relax and it gets to go for the throat emotionally, and it has real impact. The The twists and turns of this guy's life are incredible, very dramatic. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun details from history, like little scandals and little half-remembered things from hundreds of years ago that are given this sort of immediacy and sort of, you know, this weight that take it out of the pages of a history book. Um, I mean, there's a great little detail that I already knew, but is always fun to consider that the vice president didn't used to be someone the president picked. It was just the person who got the second amount of votes and the second largest amount of votes in the election. And I reckon that's a bit of fun. We should, they should consider bringing that back. How good would it be if Donald Trump was Joe Biden's vice president right now? (laughs) How good, how good would it be if Hillary Clinton had been Donald Trump's vice president? I reckon we could have had a lot of fun with that. Um, That would be a, it's obviously the chaos. (laughs) that's the burn it down option um but some great songs and music like justifiably brilliant so catchy so well orchestrated so well orchestrated so well written uh and really phenomenal performances by all of the people involved uh the dancing as you mentioned harley is very strong and these are the people who have been doing the show in Melbourne for a few years now, and now finally it's gone uh, on an Australian tour. And I admit, I was a little bit cynical going into it. I was a little bit like, you know, okay, is is the, the best way to experience Hamilton through Australians doing their best American accent? You know, it's so rooted in Americanness. You know that I I did wonder, and um, but you know it. We have sent our best to <laughs> to do the Hamilton version. Like, really phenomenal performers, a lot of Indigenous performers, absolutely fantastic job. Um, and they've maintained sort of the spirit of the multiculturalism of the original in a really strong way. Uh, and it uses the stage brilliantly. It uses the space that they're does operating in. Does it have the in. turntable thing? It does. It does have the little turntable thing in the middle of the stage. Um, and it's a very interesting visual components in the way that they they do montage on the stage, mm. that they do, you know, shifting of, of things. They use lighting in interesting ways. It's just, it's a very innovative sort of use of the, the space, of use of the concept of theatre to tell a broader story than you normally tell in theatre. Um, and it did get me thinking of, you know, obviously the inevitable movie version they will make one day it's too big a thing for them not to if they figured out a way to make a cats movie they will figure out a way to make a hamilton movie and i Hopefully think this and one i turns thought out a hamilton movie butthole cut yeah um and Lin-Manuel miranda has been on the record saying you know in the heights they came back and did 15 years after that stage mm. 
production had started. And he thinks that that's the way to do it. Get a bit of distance and then come back. And I, and I was thinking walking out of this production that actually I think the best way to do a Hamilton adaptation is not to, not to translate it one-to-one, but to expand it. I think if any musical has the justification for doing something like Wicked is doing and splitting it into two parts, it is Hamilton. Mm. You do the one part one, the Revolutionary War part. You do part two, the in-government part. Like, it's so split neatly into these storylines that are actually, like, have a beginning and a middle and an end mm. in each half of the play but are connected, and um, and it would solve so many of the problems, I think, of that first half if instead of running an hour and a half, it was running uh, for two and a half hours. You know, if they brought Lin-Manuel Miranda, like he directed Tick, Tick, Boom, you know, get a few more movies under his belt, then bring him in to direct a two-part adaptation of Hamilton um, mm. that he has scripted himself and has expanded the script out to include, like, new songs and, and extra details. Yeah, some of the cut ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that would be a really, really strong way to do it. Because the way that he adapted Tick, Tick, Boom, having now seen the stage play, um, he did so well. And I think he he showed that he would be able to do the same kinds of things that would need to happen to Hamilton, where he added so much connective tissue um, to Tick, Tick, Boom to make it a film instead of a play where you can't sort of address the audience in the same way. Um, and I think you would need to do a lot of that same stuff with Hamilton. But, yeah, I think that's the way to you do it. You would need a much either. higher budget for Hamilton because, you know, Second oh, yeah. Revolutionary War. Yorktown would be such a oh great Oh, God, that would be nuts. Yeah. That would oh, slap. What was your favourite? Um, the, wicked, the Wicked movies are, are going to be very expensive. Mm. So, mm. like, I think, and it's absolutely, it's just such a huge cultural monolith, mm. Hamilton is, yeah. that it's just unavoidable. It will happen yeah. eventually. We just want it done in our ideal way. Uh, what was mm. your favourite number of this stage version? Um, Room Where It Happens. Yeah? Mm. Like, yes, the, the energy of that was really great. I don't have his name here off the top of my head, but the guy playing Aaron Burr in this was phenomenal. Um, and, uh, yeah, I liked that. I liked that. That was, I mean, I was aware of some of the songs from having seen them, having heard of them in passing and things like that. I knew Burn, I knew Satisfies, um, you know, stuff like that. But I hadn't heard The Room Where It Happens before. Yeah. And I hadn't yeah. heard, um, what was it, uh, it's quiet uptown. It's quiet uptown is good, but I'm thinking of the um, wait for it. Yeah, I mean that that was stuff I was really taken with, and it was partly I think because of how good the performance of that guy was. Um, and I mean, uh, room where it happens is absolutely like one of the most Broadway numbers. Did he do the dance the on top like, of the table thing? Oh, absolutely! Oh, like yes. all of that, the the background dancers dancing in unison with him. It was like. It was such a such a a showbiz musical oh, theater yeah. kind of it's number like, that that was great great to see in person. The, the performer who gets to play Aaron Burr gets a lot of great numbers. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, room where it happens is like the number yeah. where they really get to shine. How was the um the king? He was all right. I think he pushed it a little bit in places. 
Like, I, I liked the performance. I'm not as taken with that character as a lot of other people seem to be. I don't think he's quite as hilarious as a lot of people seem to think he is. Um, but he was good. I particularly like the, the little beat where he comes back in for just in the background in one of the, in the Reynolds pamphlet number. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was. The Reynolds pamphlet, also a song that fucking slaps. The guy playing, uh, Hamilton, the guy playing Aaron Burr, the guy playing Thomas Jefferson, and the women playing the Skylar sisters were all just phenomenal. I'm glad you had a good time with it. I just think it's one of the best musicals to come in the past decade. Mm. And I- Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. <laughs> the yeah. Skylar sisters. There were, but there are so many more than just those three. Like, yeah. she had like. I know! Like it's yeah. not exactly the most historically accurate um, story, but oh, broadly speaking, it hits all of the beats. Yeah. But you know, if you want the hot historical accuracy, go and watch the two-hour PBS documentary. Yeah. I will. <laughs> of course <laughs> um, you will. But you like, will. you know, it's I don't. Yeah, I know that there's criticism of of Hamilton for some of its historical inaccuracies. I think that's kind of the result of it getting so big mm. that it becomes the obvious target. It's- it's but, I also mean, a it's, show. Yeah, yeah it's, it's trying it's, to tell a story. It's it's a story about time. Yeah, it's fiction. You know, um, it's a historical fan fiction. Exactly, as is basically all of it. Yeah, all you know, if you're the if you're a person who's going to a movie that's based on real life events and you're taking it as gospel that you know that's absolutely how it happened, then mm. I'm. You know, that's a you problem. I'm sorry to say, there was no breakdancing in the American Revolutionary War. Unfortunately. Mm. Unfortunately. As cool as that would have they been. They would have had that shit sorted a lot sooner if it were the case. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I the, One of the parts that I just adore in Hamilton is in the Reynolds pamphlet, where they just have a voice, an auto-tuned voice say, Have you ever seen somebody ruin their own life? His poor wife. Mm. Just. Mm. I'd have to say probably my um, favorite number is satisfied. Did they do well with that one? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I, I, it's it w- was very well done. I mean, you could tell that they were very practiced at it. They've been doing it in Melbourne for a few years now. Like they were very on point with all of there's it. There's a level of confidence. Yeah, that's good to that's good to know. Because it's a there it's, were fifteen Skylar siblings. Yeah. yeah. Only seven of which, only eight of which, sorry, lived to adulthood. Yeah. And there were a bunch of Hamilton. Yes. Not just the one that we see (laughs) in this movie, in this play. Yeah. Hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm glad you had a good time with it. It's it's just a great show, and I can't wait for what they do in the future with a possible movie. Like, just give us the pro shot for fucking Hadestown already. I know I'm on my show. I think I filmed one. I know I'm on my soapbox about it all the time, but still, just... I know we're never going to get our ideal cast for that one back, but still. Yeah, you're, n- you're not going to get that cast, but you can always play the Broadway album over it. Mm. Uh, so. so, that's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Kick-Ass. Oh, oh, oh also, before we move on, uh, Lawson, you were sitting in the Lincoln seats. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Both were the, the most reasonably priced, nicest seats that we could get was in the front row of the left prong of the second balcony. 
Just, you keep your head on a swivel for any potential presidential assassins. Yeah. You're in those, yeah. you're in the Harry Osborne wing where he's staring down at Peter Parker. I love that you saw Hamilton while sitting in a seat that has to do with gun violence and American politics. I think you're really overstating this, son. <laughs> I just think it's funny. Uh, yep, so there you have it. That's what we've seen within the week. Now you... Now we will play for you the trailer to kick ass. How come nobody's ever tried to be a superhero? Well, I don't know. Probably because it's impossible. Putting on a mask and helping people? How's that impossible? Dude, if anybody did it in real life, they get their ass kicked. Oh, no, I'm just standing around, you know. No, not... I was just a regular guy. Hey, gorgeous. Hey. My only superpower oh. was being invisible to girls. <laughs> The comic books had it wrong. You don't need a power to be a superhero. Leave him alone! It's none of your business! Yes, it is. Hey, there's a dude just like a superhero they're fighting a bunch of guys. Who are you? I'm Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass has become the latest internet phenomenon. This is awesome. It's actually pretty good. You should call himself Ass Kick instead. <laughs> He's inspired a wave of real-life superheroes. Tool up, honey buddy. It's time to get bad guys. You want to go fight some crime? Let's see what you can do. This guy comes out of nowhere. This would be the guy that looks like Batman. They tell me one guy killed eight of my men tonight? I gotta send a public service message that being a superhero is bad for your health. So you want to play? are you? I'm Hit Girl. And that's Big Daddy. Kick ass. Red mist. Oh, that kind of hurt. Yeah. I think I'm in love with her, dude. I want this place locked down. Nobody comes in, nobody goes out. It's a little kid. Oh, yeah. Didn't see that, did you? That's right, we're superheroes. You love us. That was the trailer for Kick Ass. It is a superhero movie directed by Matthew Vaughan and it is based on the comic book series written by Mark Millar and illustrated by John Romita Jr. It follows Dave Lazuski, played by Aaron Taylor Johnson, a teenager without much going on in his life other than a love of comic books and a lack of communication with his single father. Idle minds are the devil's workshop, and he one day gets the idea of dressing up in a cheap, dinky-looking superhero outfit, calling himself Kick-Ass, and going out to fight crime. He is immediately stabbed and hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. Undeterred, Dave soldiers on, eventually becoming a media sensation after footage of him beating petty criminals with nunchucks goes viral. Batons! Yes. And unlike all of the other footage of law enforcement personnel beating petty criminals with batons, he becomes a hero. During his escapades, he meets two other would-be superheroes. Big Daddy, played by Nicolas Cage, 
a barely lucid ex-cop out for revenge on the mobsters who ruined his life, and his foul-mouthed 12-year-old daughter Hit-Girl, played by Chloe Grace Moretz. They're much more brutal than Dave, well-versed in shooting criminals and cutting off limbs with swords, and Dave is almost scared straight. But he's been getting on pretty well with Red Mist, played by Christopher Mintz Plus, another vigilante about his age. Little does he know, Red Mist is Chris D'Amico, son of Frank D'Amico, played by Mark Strong, the very same mob boss whose enterprise is being violently dismantled by Big Daddy and Hit Girl. He's out to find and kill the city's masked vigilantes, and he's enlisted his son as a Trojan horse to bring Kickass and his new colleagues right to him. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on Kick-Ass. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I like a lot of what this movie is doing. I think the main performances by Johnson, Moretz, uh, Cage, and Strong are strong. I like a lot of what this movie is doing. Some of its language in the script is very rooted in that sort of... 2000s era but what it's trying to talk about is heroes and not standing by all right you ready harley yep. three two one go i feel like i'm repeating myself it's better than the book i say this a lot and it is absolutely true here the film has a lot more heart uh a lot of the soy beats are one-to-one although they they massage stuff for the film make characters deeper and more interesting for the film. And, I don't know, Matthew Vaughn just has a really good energy for this sort of thing. Very great fight scenes, although he would do much more extravagant and intricate ones in the Kingsman films. I like this movie. I think in the in the way that it is subversive, it is a groundbreaking superhero movie. I think that it has now been done better yeah. as the years have gone on. Um, but I really appreciate the swings that this is taking. And it's got a great cast. I think Chloe Grace Moretz is an absolute scene stealer. It really cements her at such a young age as, as being a fantastic actress. Uh, and, uh, I, I find a lot to like in it. Even if it probably is a little bit, you know, just a hair away from being a real classic in my eyes. But yeah, let's talk about the comic, because as, as I said at the end of last week's episode, Harley, like Mark Millar always seemed to me like the kind of person whose ideas are best enjoyed when filtered through other people's aesthetic. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we discussed Wanted, uh, that would have been last year, and I quite enjoyed that film for what it was, mainly because it was virtually nothing like the comic. Vaughn Hughes a lot closer here. Uh, to, to, like, plot beats and characterizations. <clears throat> Sorry. But I feel as though the book is too much. Um, it's got... Like, I'm not one who's against graphic violence in a comic book. It's a comic book, so I don't really mind that. And it's all rendered in a very specific and articulated art style from John Romita Jr., which I do appreciate. He's a really talented artist. Uh... Really picked up the banner from his father, John Romita. Uh, just great work from him. But Mark Millar, man. I, I, I don't know what my deal is. I just can't cotton on to what he's putting out. I Well, from what, I, from what I've seen, there's a meanness to what he does in his 
graphic novels. There's a nastiness yeah. that gets filtered through, especially, I mean, I the character of Katie in the comic of Kick-Ass is, you know, there's just a, a harder edge in what he does with that character, like a sort of, like, nasty streak there that is just bleak. And when you get to the, the second kick-ass movie the material that that movie takes its uh takes Even its bleaker, cues a from lot darker. a lot darker and like in ways that just having not read it seem on the face of it to be unnecessarily exploitative yeah i and we talked about that in um in wanted that the material that that's based on is like horrifically bleak yeah and dark and how are you supposed to care about anybody like I do, I do see where Malaw was going, and the the core of everything that I like in the movie is present in the book. Don't get me wrong; this is still a pretty straight adaptation of the comics. Characterization and specific uh things are altered to make it better for a film, but still, it's not a wholesale change like with Wanted. I I don't know. I just. It's not just how bleak the story is. It's not just how violent the story is. Because I can, I can move past that. Like I, I like dark superhero stuff, and I've, I'm going to talk about. I like Watchmen. I like the Watchmen movie. I like Zack Snyder's work. I like bleak shit. But it's the tone, the heart, though. This is a sort of it, the book just doesn't have the heart that the movie does. Yeah, there's a little bit of the. 15-year-old boy going, yeah, this is edgy, you know, this is this dark stuff. And, like, like, the thing that got to... The me- whole character of Chris D'Amico in the second film, I mean, that seems a very Mark Millar concept. Yeah. That I just... He's just got to dirty it up and really, but like, it's yeah, it's this filthy revel in it. it. In the book. Um, mm. But, like, it. I think the thing that rubbed me the wrong way the moment I saw it is in... I think the the cover for the second issue, uh, it was like going on about there's like a quote on it like about how hardcore and violent the book is. It's like most violent book on the shelves or some shit. And I'm just like, what am I twelve? Am I supposed to be impressed by that, Mark? Like you wrote Civil War for Christ's sake. Show some class. Sickening violence, just the way you like. Yeah, it. that. It's like you wrote Civil War for Marvel. Have some have some class, mate. Like, I get the point of the story, but just because it's real... And that's the thing. It's not even realistic. You can say that it's grounded as much as you like, but there's an inherent unreality to it, you know? I don't know. Let's just get to talking about the movie. I enjoy that a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that like I was saying, that's the that seems to be the way to enjoy Mark Millar is through the, the adaptations of his work. This wanted Kingsman. Um, Civil War I mean, as a comic is good. Civil War well, 2 yeah, isn't. but he's working with Marvel standards and practices unit. In that. Edit, like, editors are a goddamn godsend. And didn't he, like, really manage with some of the ultimate stuff that he did to kind of cross over into some territory that was pretty bleak? Oh, yeah. Ultimates sucks. Um, But, you know, that's just my opinion and... I just know. I don't know. Yeah. It's just too disgusting for me. <clears throat> I mean, it feels like he wants to make the boys the TV show, mm. but he always will take it too far and make the book. <laughs> um, 
Like, I know, I, I'm That's... the superhero f- comic guy. I'm the comics guy. I shouldn't be saying this all the time, that the movie is better than the book, but it constantly is, and I hate it. Happened with V for Vendetta. It... <sighs> um, well, it's a certain type of... It's a certain type of writer that I think that you push back against some of their instincts of yeah. sort of like grim dark, you know, everything's shitty, the world is shitty, it's okay to be shitty mm. kind of aesthetic. Like that, some of Alan Moore's stuff, a lot of Frank Miller's work, that's stuff that we've discussed because they're seminal works, they're game changing, but it's stuff that you push back against some of the ethos of. Mm. And that goes to why I like this movie, and I'm going to say it out from the front, I'm going to tell you what my favourite scene of sequence is right now. It is it is not the scene itself, but a moment in the scene. It is when Kick-Ass has uh, defended that guy from those three guys that was bashing him up, when one of the assailants says, why are you doing this for a piece of shit you don't even know? Just walk away. And Dave just says, no, never. Three guys bashing one guy and everyone just watches? Yeah, I'd rather die. That is the heart of the superhero to me. That is boiled down what a superhero does. They put their life on the line to protect other people. Not just people they know, but perfect strangers who might not be perfect themselves. But the superhero is the person who intervenes, who stands in the way and says... I won't just watch anymore. I won't let you hurt them. And that's the heart that this has that the book doesn't, you know? Um, well, yeah. Like, Miller's... Miller's style seems to me to be a kind of, like, prodding of the audience. Like, he wants to go up and, like, Clockwork Orange style, put the... Technique. Awful... Most awful things he can think of in front of your face and prod you in the shoulder. Hey, isn't this fucked up? Isn't this isn't this edgy? And, and, isn't it aren't I provoking you? And and the sad thing is, it just bored the shit out of me. I've seen it all before. Done better. But Um yeah, I mean it, I think it's a decent thing now. Like I I kinda like that his whole unit is now owned by Netflix and that they're producing all of these adaptations of his work, even if so far <laughs> we haven't really gotten any <laughs> successful ones. I mean, Jupiter's Legacy, that was one of those shows that really, like, taught you that you can't trust Netflix on anything because it was, like, number one on their own list of things and it was cancelled after three weeks. I but, promise you, you know, they I are, get around to Jupiter's Legacy. <laughs> they are Eventually. They are doing a whole bunch of stuff over there. Um, i got to finish that, you know, I'll be Because he has great ideas. Yeah. He has great... Yeah. Um, he has great premises. He's a really great concept it's just that, guy. Yeah. It's just that it gets filtered through some really sort of like sitting at the back of the class, drawing skull and crossbones in your notebook and not paying attention to the teacher kind of like. Yeah. Just, it gets filtered yeah, through the mind yeah. of a 14-year-old that has their head full of pornography and those weird S's everyone used to draw back in 2011. I mean, and to be fair, some of the script in this movie still has that. Like, the amount of swearing that Hit Girl does, even though that's obviously... It's the point, ...the point of the character, the fact that she is beyond her years, the fact that she never had a childhood. 
And well, also the, the way no, that she's not beyond her gay years. Gay is used derogatorily. She's not beyond her years because her father has basically brainwashed her into finding this yeah. normal. Again. He says, he says, I turned it into a game. Yeah, like he That's says, why it. he's dressed like Batman. That's why they wear right, costumes. I, yay or nay on the Adam West impression? It's too much. Yeah, is he doing an Adam West impression? I thought he was just being no. Cage. The, the the stilted. Oh. Delivery is very much uh, sort of the old chum kind yeah. of stuff. That it's also in like all of the interviews. Like and, from and, and the, the time is, the movie came out, like that's not what Cage's, I was getting from it. But now that I think Cage's about it, Cage's yeah. doing it too obviously. What worked with Adam West back in the sixties was the complete one hundred percent earnestness. Like that's what made it so fucking funny all the goddamn time. It, 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 with Cage, he's forcing it. Feels it feels less like an ad. It feels less like an Adam West, more like a William Shatner. There is a tad, there's a bit of Shatner there yeah. too. James Kirk. Yeah, but if you go back and you listen to the interviews in 2010 yeah. with Matthew Vaughan and Nicolas Cage, they're just talking. Uh, this was th- something that Nicolas Cage brought. He just started doing it, <laughs> and hmm. um, like apparently, I think it goes to how absolutely unhinged this guy is. Yes, yeah. apparently. Chloe Grace Moretz and Aaron Taylor Johnson had no idea what he was doing, and Matthew <laughs> Vaughan had to explain it to them. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree with you, Harley, that it is too much. It doesn't bother me so much in the dialogue scenes because I kind of think that it it really emphasises how crazy he is. Yeah. But by the time he's literally on fire and Adagio in D minor is playing and he's screaming, you know, Robert, Robert, like it completely, uh, just like. I don't know, it just, like, completely robs that scene of all of the emotional impact it had I know, but I I unironically love when he screams, switch to kryptonite. It's so silly. It just... Well, yeah, exactly, that's the problem. It's so silly, but it's not asking... It's peak Nicolas Cage. Yeah, but it's not asking me to interpret it as silly. It doesn't want me to interpret it as silly. It wants me to interpret it as this tragic moment. It's why they're playing the sunshine score over the top (laughs) of it. It's like a shortcut to, you know, emotional complexity. It's all in slow motion. It's this little girl trying to save her father from being murdered in front of her. And we've got Nicolas Cage doing, Kryptonite! Doing his in the background. And it's like, oh, no, it's all idiocy. It's all just dumb. And it completely ruins that scene for me. Um, but I like what Ivan Taylor Johnson is doing. He, like, he's moved into a higher register. Yeah. Um, and that's very considered the whole time. And it, it comes off as natural. And they really... Tr- I love how much they try to show people... Oh, yeah, Aaron Taylor-Johnson isn't a fucking prince among men. He's just on... No, we're going to try to make him like a dweeb. Well, he he has sort... Admittedly, he has sort of, like, as he's gotten older, sort of become a lot more of a sort of leading man type than he necessarily was when he filmed this at the age of 19. He did still have a bit of that that teenage awkwardness Mm. to him at that point, even though now, like, the rumours are that he is, like, one of the frontmost considerations for the to be the next bond mm. like yeah wouldn't it be incredible if we had in sean connery's filmography something where he played a character as like pathetic as this <laughs> <laughs> like when he was if we just had awkwardly in the background like 19 year old sean connery you know getting like, mugged and 
and and stabbed while dressed as a superhero. <laughs> to be fair, Sean uh, Connery don't, also has don't, Sir don't, Billy. Don't you mean eighty year old Sir Billy? <laughs> That's that's more I'll embarrassing. Never... I think the amount of times that we have mentioned Sir Billy, <laughs> we need to do that as a special episode. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> He's putting his foot down on that, John. Um, Fair enough. I where would you really even find it? it either, it's probably but... like on Tubi. Well, you you go to an abandoned warehouse in the middle of the night. You find it chained in oh, a no. safe somewhere, cursed. It's only available for purchase Ooh. or rental on Apple, Go YouTube, and Fetch. What if you had to track Absolutely. down the last remaining Civic video rental store and they're the only people who carry Sir Billy? <laughs> now, the way that you get Sir Billy is you go into an alley <clears throat> in the middle of the day, you spin around three times, clap above your head, and it falls out of an upper window alongside three-day-old ramen. Um... But yeah, I I think Dave is a really compelling character because once the idea gets in his head, he cannot let it go. And and this is the thing. Well, this is the thing that I think is where I differ from my interpretation of this movie and yours, Harley. You're paying a lot of close attention to um, you know that sort of instinct that he has to you know be a hero and whatnot mm. and protect people. I'm not so sure it's all as genuine as that. No. I think that that scene that you're talking about is a little out of step with a lot of his characterization in the rest I'm, of the movie and indeed I just think in the it's sequel. When it comes down to it, when 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 it's like for most of it, he's enjoying the fame and there is a great arrogance about it. But I think when it comes down to clutch, he has that inside of him. And yeah. Like, but I do think it comes down also to the end thesis of the movie, which is not, in my eyes, what you guys have said, what you said, John, about, you know, standing up and doing what's right. That's not how I read it at all. It is ha the same way I re read um, Malar's take on Wanted, the same way I read a lot of his stuff, which is an active subversion of the Spider-Man mantras. It's with great power comes no responsibility. Mm. It's these kids mucking around. It's these p unstable people who actually, and if that, if there is something, you know, really smart in what Millard does and what he does in a lot of it, it is puncture the ideas of superheroes. Mm. Um, it is sort of, he, he might not always like get the tone right, but he does have, a keen and accurate observation that I mentioned myself in my um, intro that, like, these are not stable no. people and we shouldn't be lauding them. Like, the idea that these are heroes is kind of nonsense. Like I said, you know, he's going out and extrajudiciously beating petty criminals. Mm. And, mm. like, you put, put um like, a cop, just a regular cop, in Batman's shoes, or in Kick-Ass's shoes, mm. doing the kind of stuff that they do, you know, tracking down these people and just going to town on them, breaking bones, pepper spraying, and just, you know, mm. chucking them off buildings and things. No. Like, we people would be in the street marching against that. But in fiction, we sort of embrace that and we ignore some of the issues with it in favour of this kind of, like explanatory power fantasy of finally someone who will stand up and do the right thing. And I think that what Malar is 
aware of and is trying to talk about, trying to subvert, is the idea that, like, you know, this is a this is a crazy thing to do, and people who would do this would not be well. Yeah, I think that's best explored with Big Daddy. Like, mm. he's not a superhero, like, at all. He's just no, he's- another criminal and thief. They're not yeah, doing what they're doing to save lives. They, they, they're, and, not and inter- they're not intervening is- in street crime. They're not. They're not doing what Kickass did, like getting in the way of someone getting beat. Someone getting beat up. They're butchering people and stealing drugs, yeah. and then selling them. It's a revenge thing. Yeah, that um, like Damon McCready, Big Daddy has basically just channeled it to make it entertaining for his daughter. Yeah, and I don't think it's an accident that Big Daddy is the most closely matched to a real-life superhero in terms of aesthetic. Mm. I say real life, in terms of a pre-established superhero. Like, they pointed out, everyone calls him the guy dressed like Batman, and he is dressed like Batman. He's doing it Adam West's impression. The connection is explicit. He has a ward, a young ward. Mm. It... um. You're right that through that character, that is Millard doing his, and Vaughn as well, doing their most direct sort of takedown of the the superhero myth. Mm. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I can't really get to considering this movie a classic is that the movie itself wants to have it both ways. It wants to have that commentary and to have that there but at the same time, it really wants us to have fun while we watch that violence. It really wants us to, you know, root for Big Daddy and Hit Girl. Um, and it really wants to sort of, in the end, endorse the thing that it has spent the whole movie telling us is a foolish and, you know, mentally unwell enterprise. And, like... Um, and that's the bit that I can never Dave get over treats, the line like, with here. Dave treats the several murders he commits as no big thing. <laughs> like, mm. you killed someone with a bazooka, my dude. Yeah, or even, like, that scene where he meets Hit Girl for the first time, um, and that whole house is is slaughtered, but then there's the woman who is not armed, mm. um, does not sort of make any sort of, like, threatening moves to hit girl but she she smashes the bottle picks up a ah, picks right, up a bottle right. i forgot about but that still to, she's to, like to quote, terrified yeah to quote in bruges i would never kill a woman on principle but she came at me with a glass bottle <laughs> and that's a deadly weapon yeah but like it, there's just a level of ruthlessness to that sequence and to hit girl's response to it the way that she like keeps looking over at dave like grinning hey you want to get in on this isn't this fun mm. and the way that Dave's response after that is, oh, they're just so much better at that than me. Why should I even bother? It's not like, holy shit, these people are crazy and they just like shot people's arms off and impaled them right in front of me. It's like, oh, they're so much better at me than this. Like, it is a weird, weird tone that I don't think all the way works mm. because at this, like, at, like, it's this thing that I think is in the end rooted in Malar's own take on it, which is, he wants he he wants to talk about the darkness and the rotten underbelly of it and the, but he's still the obsessed problems with the, power with the principles. Yes, but he exactly at the same time he loves it. You know, he loves the power fantasy and he loves comics and he loves superheroes and he can't bring himself and so the movie can't bring itself. Matthew Vaughn can't bring himself either 
to come down against it at the end of the day. Mm. Like, they can stop and talk about how crazy it is and how morally uh, unsound it is, but at the end of the day, they just can't bring themselves to do anything but back it in. But also, real-life superheroes just aren't that interesting. <laughs> um, no. Like, we- there are- I put this in the biggest air quotes you could possibly imagine. Real-life superheroes are basically <laughs> what they do is- get in colourful costumes and walk around the city, uh, basically, like, taking photo opportunities with people. Uh, that What that guy was doing before Mark Strong <laughs> beats the piss out of him. Yeah, but a lot of what they do also, like, the, the sensible ones, yeah. is community service. They work as soup kitchens. They, you know, get cats out of trees. They... they- they, when they see something, they call the cops. They go to yeah. homeless encampments and bring bottled water, non-perishable yeah. foods. Like, I really appreciate the work that those people are doing, because it's that kind of stuff that really changes lives. That, yeah. that you could bring someone off the street and prevent a death by helping the homeless, or... Yeah. Isn't there also but then a- the question becomes, I suppose, if you're being uncharitable, the question becomes, then why dress up like a superhero? Yeah. Like, the only, also a only reason who, to like, do that is sort of for your own ego. Yeah. Mm. Like, I'm not saying it's not also But isn't there also a guy who made taser gloves? Hmm? Isn't there also that one guy who made taser gloves? Yes. Uh, one guy did yeah. make taser gloves, and I think he shocked himself. Um, of course he did. <laughs> you gotta, like, you're gonna have an itch. What are you gonna do? You're wearing you have taser to gloves. Test it. So you can't just What's he gonna do? wear the taser test gloves all the time. Um... There's, like, one guy, Phoenix Jones, who turned out to be a criminal anyway. Um, of course. But, like, there, there is something in the idea that... I don't know. I, I understand where you're coming from, but I appreciate the film's earnestness. I know that it struggles to really seal the deal on its message because it wants to have its cake and eat it too, but I do like that, I don't know, the movie's just not as bleak as it could have been. Because ultimately, it is still fiction. It's not a real world. There's no way a 12-year-old girl is killing a room full of men. And you're right that at the end of the day, what keeps this movie working is the fact that it follows Millar's um, tendency to strip the nobility out of heroes, Mm. but it leaves some of it intact. It doesn't go all the way with it. And maybe that comes up with a slightly wobbly um, sort of thematic and moral code that this movie is operating by. But at the same time, it is what makes the movie work emotionally yeah. and as an entertaining watch. It's still a superhero movie. Like, you, yeah. you strip away all of the, you know, the Marvel, the DC, the... All the... You, you could deconstruct a superhero all day, but you still have... The superhero movie and it, and it has yeah. to be an earnest and fun version of that like the boys it's still a superhero show it's just that the people in the colorful costumes are the bad guys the boys are still hmm. vigilante superhero characters hmm. um and i think that vaughn is sort of the malar whisperer yeah like he mm. he has a way of approaching that he massages the work to make it an entertaining and fun film what he has here is a very great visual style and he's a really really good filmmaker 
And he's worked in the superhero thing before and after this. What did he do before this? Not before this, sorry. And he's worked in superhero films after this with X-Men First Class and... I would argue the Kingsman movies, movies are kind of superhero Yeah, I think, I think they're more like him him and Millar doing for spy stuff what they did for superheroes. Yeah. Mm. But um, I think what he does that other directors sort of struggle with, even stuff that we liked, like Wanted. Wanted wasn't really a funny movie. No. Like, yeah. it, it couldn't... The dark wit that Millar is doing, the, the wit in quotation marks sometimes. Um, you know, Vaughn is able to take that and translate it and filter it through something a little more palatable. Like, like there's a there's, there's an alchemy that Vaughn can perform that gets the edginess, the humour, and the subversiveness onto the screen intact in a presentable fashion. And I think that's probably, like, I want to talk about Hit Girl. I think that's sort of best summed up in the film's handling of Hit Girl because I think in a lot of ways that character is the movie's biggest swing. It's what basically made it so he had to fund it independently because no studio would greenlight it with a swearing, stabbing 12-year-old girl. Mm. They all kept saying, you know, either cut her or make her 19. Um, mm. But he was sort of insistent about it. And I think that it is it is something that works so well. It works on a level of, like, I don't know, there is just something back in the lizard part of everyone's brain where seeing a 12-year-old girl do action scenes and kick people's asses is fun. It's unavoidably fun, well, it's especially you with... you don't see it all the time. Yeah, especially with how stylishly the movie presents it, with how well Chloe Grace Moretz acts it. It's almost like it's the same thing as, like, getting a kick out of seeing Helen Mirren fire a gun in red yeah. or drive a fast car in the fast and furious it's like, it's like a- old people old people and young people doing things that are normally the the realm of of 20 30 year olds yeah that's stuff that we get a kick out like of. it's a, it's the same thing with uh x23 and logan yeah or well it's the same sort of instinct behind the whole precocious child thing yeah it's just like chloe grace Moretz in 500 days of summer it's amusing to see her give dating advice to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Mm. You know, it's the same basic thing, just a much more R-rated version of that. Mm. And Chloe Grace Moretz steals this movie. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. In- instead of being like, you know, maybe you should just be honest with this woman. She's saying shit like, maybe you shouldn't be such a fucking pussy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like the-, the way that we're introduced to her in costume is the movie's harshest swear word um like and it really is a very assured performance it's like she was 12 when she shot this um she's always been a confident actor yeah and she has like a level of composure Mm. uh and like poise to her that has allowed her to transition into these adult roles that she's doing now in a way that like you know so often like it happened with dakota fanning that she had the precocious kid thing down, but they forgot what to... They couldn't figure out how to transition her roles to adulthood. Hollywood couldn't. So they moved on to the other Fanning sister. Um, and But Chloe Grace Moretz, Haley Steinfeld, although Haley Steinfeld never did anything quite this harsh, mm. um, they've managed to make that, that trip 
a little easier. Yeah. And they're like literally none of the male actors of their generation did. The Timothy Chalamets and the Lucas Hedges all turned up after the fact. Mm. Mm. Um, I love the behind the scenes thing about how she talked about the swear words and she said, oh, if my parents call me talking like this at home, I would be in deep trouble. Well, yeah, and it, it did cause a ton of controversy when it came out, parents, groups and stuff and such were making a big fuss out of it. I actually remember I wasn't allowed to see it when it came out because my mother got mm. caught up in a bit of the like, oh, oh this is so inappropriate kind of thing. Um, well, like, that's the thing. But, We've all been 12. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's on. the thing that I think... I think adults forget, obviously the media, it's media is suitable for a certain age group, but like the whole idea that Chloe Grace Moretz would somehow be corrupted by acting in this material, I think gives the lie to, or, or doesn't treat, doesn't view, like a 12 year old is easily capable of discerning fiction from reality. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yes, certainly there are 12 year olds that wouldn't do, you shouldn't put in a movie like this no. because they're not up for it but you know i think there's a there's a level of like adults tend to forget how competent yeah. young people can be like, I, sometimes and there are some fucking foul mouth 12 year olds yes. oh yeah like i wasn't that bad when i was 12 hit 14 swore like a sailor um and jean never stopped <laughs> Uh, it's always been a self-control thing. I eat me spinach. Um, weird. We have avoided talking about the gangsters full stop, really. I like Mark Strong here. Uh, me too. I think he's a lot of fun. Um, I love when he pulls out that roundhouse kick <laughs> on that kick-ass impersonator, and it's like, okay, <laughs> he's a karate guy now. Well, we've had that scene of him mm. training. Um, but, he, yeah, he's... He's fun. I think that Christopher Mintz Plus is good in a role that I don't really care for too much. I don't, like, dislike it, but it's sort of just like, yeah, I understand why you're here, but you're not why I'm watching this movie. Um, but they are sort of, they, they slip into the background in comparison to Hit Girl, in comparison to Kick-Ass, Big Daddy. Yeah. That selection. Although I do really like the finale. I like the assault on their sort of penthouse and all of their goons. Um, they have, have the one guy just sort of like goes in, oh, yeah, everything's under control. I just came to get the bazooka. <laughs> I love when he picks up the bazooka. It's like, are you really taking that? Yes. He comes, he comes back with Chris and the bazooka and uh, Mark Strong's just like, that a bazooka? Okay. Yeah, and then when he comes back in, it's like, under control, you're grabbing a fucking bazooka. He looks at Mark Strong, and Strong just gives him the nod. Yeah. Um, I also like how they separate the, the characters for the for at least a little part of the end bit. Kick-Ass fights Red Mist, uh, Hit-Girl fights Mark Strong. And it's, it's not often you'd see a scene like that. Some really complex choreography had to take place to make that mm. work because like well, even before that bit when she's taking down all of the yeah. goons and doing the wall running bits and things i do mm. love the jetpack yeah <laughs> like <laughs> that's some great stuff like that as a sequence it's really good and and that's something that we haven't talked about that because this movie had to be produced independently before ultimately being sold to lionsgate mm. it was working with a pretty small budget and it makes and it looks decent. Yeah, it makes a lot out of 
the resources that it has, considering, because this was only budgeted at uh, $30 million. And it shows the uh, the sort of the talent of Vaughn as someone who can marshal resources and someone who can uh, really, you know, create. He's got the Midas touch. If only they let him do that for Kingsman Golden Circle. Ooh. Well, I don't know how much of that is them not getting to it and him not wanting to get to it. Like, he seems to keep getting distracted by things. Like, mm. he got distracted by the King's Man, but now he's gotten distracted by this spy movie starring Henry Cavill and Sam Rockwell that's coming out this year called Argyle. Um, that's distributed by Apple TV. Mm. Hmm. But yeah, like... Vaughn knows what he's doing. Like, it's not just the action scenes that he does really well. He has a good pace and good energy. He never drags with his films. Like, King's Man is probably my favorite work of his, you know? Uh, but still, like, you can you can see where he would develop too. Uh, we've done mm. Vaughn movies before. We did Stardust. And, and Vaughn is just a great, great adapter. Because he's able to take a source material, cotton on to like the the point of it, and very keenly cut out the stuff that's not necessary, add stuff where something needs a bit more development, or add stuff where the extractions would be taking out important connective tissue. But what's present he, wouldn't work, so just shift it around. He understands what things from a source material fit with a movie. Very specifically fit with a movie. It's like... And he does a good job with that. You can tell that he loves the source material he works with. And that's not always the case. We need to wrap this up because I'm just getting so hot in this room. (laughs) Yeah. And I also have somewhere to be. But I do want to talk about the music a little bit um, before we go. I really like this score. I think it is kind of remarkable how well it hangs together Mm. considering the the flurry of um, composers attached to it. It has something like three or four composers. I mean, it reuses stuff from multiple things, actually. It reuses Adagio from from Sunshine. It also reuses the music from 28 Days Later, Um, both of them done by John Murphy for Danny Boyle movies. Because mm. John Murphy is one of the composers here, as is Henry Jackman, as is Alana Shkeri, as is Marius de Vries. And it was not like people getting replaced or people's schedules not working out. It was a collaborative thing between the four mm. of them, which is extremely unusual to see in a movie soundtrack. And, and it's even, come together remarkably well. Yeah, it's like it's unusual to see full stop, but it's even more unusual that it worked. Like it 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 shouldn't, but it does. Like Adagio fits like it just fits well it fits until uh yes, yes. nicholas cage starts screaming but it's like it's sweeping and dramatic so like i don't know it just turned out really really well there's a great continuity there all right well now that we've finished our discussion proper why don't we each go around and say who our mvp is for this movie what our favorite scene or sequence is and of course who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! 
I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie has got to be Chloe Grace Moretz. I think it's a scene-stealing performance. It's a star-making turn for her. It's been the start of what has so far been a really interesting and uh, entertaining career um, from everything from, you know, like, you know, the peripheral these days to uh, our favourite gremlin fighter in Shadow in the Cloud. Uh, film. <laughs> yeah, she steals every scene and she has just a presence that um, really sells a character that was this movie's most dangerous mm. attempt at something. Um, I think that if she had gotten, if she had been miscast, or if she had not been able to pull it off in the way that she had, this movie would have failed pretty dismally. It would never have been able to come back from that. And uh, so I've got to give it to her. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I'm going to go with the end fight sequence in the penthouse. I think it is such a fun sequence. You get a lot of great hit girl there. You get some great stuff with the jetpack, right down to a really inventive kill for the main villain, like sort of holding on to a, ro- a bazooka um, rocket as it launches into a cityscape. Uh, and then he's like holding onto a wily Coyote style before it explodes midair, taking him with it. I mean, that's good stuff. The way that he's dispatched uh, in the comics is just boring hmm. in comparison. How does he get dispatched in the comics? Uh, his head gets bisected. Okay. Uh, in terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor John Lithgow, I think, oh, you know, I'm really thinking it through, but I've got to go with Frank D'Amico. I think he would be the best fit there. I can't quite get there with him and Big Daddy, even though, let's be honest, that's where we all want to see him. Um, I think that, uh, Frank D'Amico would be a good bit for him, a good bit of performance for him. It would let him bring some of the dry humour that Mark Strong is doing, but it would also let him bring that sort of sense of authority and smugness and sinisterness that he can do very well when asked. You also get um, to see him roundhouse, and- roundhouse kick a dude in the head. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and have a prolonged fight scene with Chloe Grace Moretz that ends with him, like, riding a bazooka <laughs> rocket out into the city. Like, the more I talk this through, the more this sounds pretty good. So, yeah, I'm going to go with that. Uh, for me, I would have to say my MVP is Matthew Vaughn. He took something that honestly I think is pretty trash and made it an earnest, really smart film. Obviously, the message does get muddled, but this is a superhero film. It's always going to come up against ideas of aspiration versus reality, what the reality of being a superhero would be. If this was a real story, Dave would have died the moment he got stabbed and hit by that car. But it's just a superhero origin story. Oh, yeah. Like, his father is crippled with that medical debt. Like, yeah. they are, like, he is never getting out from under that like, in America. That, that's the American, like, system. Like, that is... Like, he has... He's in full traction. He had to have, like, implants in his bones to restore. Like, like his skeleton, he's... Yeah, that family is never coming out from that. Like, Dave's, like, great-great-grandchildren will be paying off that debt. <laughs> and that shit, like, it doesn't depreciate. It That medical debt only gets worse. Um, But yeah, like, Matthew Vaughn is the great adapter. He is able to take things and really latch onto the heart of it and make them better. 
in most cases, particularly with the Malaw cases. He is the great translator for Mark Malaw to make me actually appreciate his stories. Um, and he's just an assured hand, and he worked with the budget he had. It's very confident work. My favorite scene of sequence, I said it at the beginning, it's that moment where Kick-Ass is defending that guy um, against the three assailants. It's It boils down to the point of it, you know? The superhero is the person who intervenes, be it in someone getting assaulted, or someone's in an accident, or s- there's a fire. Or there's a cat stuck up a tree. Like, they, they help. Is it always in the sanest possible way? Shit, no. <laughs> like, you got characters like Batman dressing up like a flying rat. You got Spider-Man wearing a skin-tight leotard. It's not sane, but it's fun. And it's, the fantasy isn't just imagining being that person, it's imagining that that person can exist. That that person can actually do the impossible thing. That someone can walk through fire and not be harmed. That they can run faster than a locomotive. It's, it's multiple types of wish fulfillment. And that scene didn't forget that. What the core of that wish is. That people won't just be spectators. Um, I really understand where you're going at, Lawson, but I desperately want to see him as Big Daddy. John Lithgow's Big Daddy, I think, would be great. You get that- With the Ned Flanders moustache. With the- with the moustache, with the whole, like, faux Batman shit he's got going on. Um, I also think he can bring a real, like, paternal side to it. And he's no stranger to playing deranged. Like, he's been doing that most of his career. We watched some clips from Ricochet, for Christ's sake, and he's going, like, so far in that. Um, I, I also think that we also get him in a great action sequence, which is the, the warehouse thing. And again, we just want to see John Lithgow in a fight scene, like, shooting guns and stuff. We got that in Ricochet, Cliffjumper and stuff, but, like, closer to modern-day Lithgow? I like that stuff. John? Yeah, I have to give it to Chloe Grace Moretz. It, not only in this, but a lot of her performances around that time just show her that she was a star in the making. She instantly has screen presence. She completely understands what she has to do for this character. And she's got talent beyond her years. I'm glad that she's had the career that she's had. I hope she makes some bigger movies, but she's... She's been kicking ass since she's been 11, and that's always fun to see. Uh, not every child actor could have played this role. This, and I've, I've always been a fan of her. For my favorite scene or sequence, I actually really like the scene where those goons are beating up Big Daddy and Kick-Ass. Just the way that it's framed, the fact that there's a henchman in the background with a red ski mask with the lightning bolt on it, sort of playing into the whole super henchman of it. The way that the guy so casually describes the knuckle dusters, the baseball bat, the batons, and the joy in which he takes it, I just find that a very compelling sequence. For who I would get John Lithgow as, I understand Harley. He would be really fun as Big Daddy. But I like too much of what Nicolas Cage is doing. It, it it doesn't rub me the wrong way like it might do with you, Lawson. I agree with you. Frank would be a brilliant character for Lithgow to play. 
We still get him firing guns. We still get him kicking ass. We get him gunned down. We get him gunning down a person who's running away in the middle of the day. And that would just be all of the memes. All of them. Also, him roundhouse kicking people? Incredible. That would be incredible. So, yeah. And also, he can have that coldness to him. And he's got that dryness with his humor as well. Where he he can really do that character well. I love a lot of what Mark Strong is doing. But I think Lithgow could play that role particularly well. Mm. Uh, so now we are going to put it to a vote whether or not we are a pro kick-ass podcast or not. Lawson, cast your vote first. I can't get there. I know that this is a movie that people really, really love, but it just doesn't come together as much as I want it to. I really like it, and I think that there's a lot going for it. But it just is a little too scattered in its execution for me to really get over the line. And I actually, next week, I'm actually probably going to make a surprising argument that Kick-Ass 2 is the more interesting of the two films, at least. Maybe even the better. It actually errs more to Millar's vibe. Yeah, but in an interesting way. In a way that actually doesn't seem quite at odds. Doesn't have quite the tonal sort of, like, difficulties. The tonal dissonance. It's still tasteful. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. But More tasteful than uh, that. <laughs> sure. So, no, I, I can't get yeah. uh, I'm I'm with you on this. I like it a lot, don't get me wrong. And I feel like it has a good heart, but I'm not quite there, you know? I do my provo for stuff that really impresses, and while I like it, it doesn't cross that line. Yeah, I'm the same. It never has really stuck out as being a great movie in my eyes. It's always been fun. It's been a bit of fun. There were some really great scenes, really great performances, obviously, Chloe Grace Moretz. And I really enjoy what Nicolas Cage is doing. But again, as you said, Lawson, its message gets somewhat muddled by its execution. And yeah, but it's a thoroughly entertaining film, but ambivalent. High-end ambivalent, but ambivalent. You also get a babyface Evan Peters. Yeah, that's fun. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are not a pro kick-ass podcast. Uh, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Do the Candy Counter, which I'm myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. Have you seen Kick Ass? What do you think? Have you read the book? What are your opinions on how the story was translated? What do you think about the sequel? Uh, what do you think about all the separate spin off comics that they've done for Kick Ass? Eh, diminishing returns, in my opinion. Uh, so, yeah. If. You can like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast of a choice. You can also share the comments around on your social medias. Uh, just keep in, that, keep in mind that when you're commenting uh, on certain services, it's commenting on specific episodes. On others, it's the whole thing. Just if you have feedback, cite the specific episode. You know, it just makes it a lot easier for us to take the feedback. But yeah, please do like, comment, rate, and subscribe. Uh, we still do have chess tournaments here. We have several dioramas dictating some of the more significant chess tournaments. Uh, Magnus Carlsen versus a lot of his competitors, yada yada. Uh, but we also still do have regular chess tournaments that occur. That one AI that broke that kid's finger that one time, he's still current champion. Uh, he has stopped breaking fingers for the most part. He switched to legs. Jesus. Yeah. He figured, you know, they don't need the legs to play chess, but it still costs enough pain to be a distraction. So, he's not nice, but still a chess champion, apparently. 
I love that you say apparently, as though you're the one who hasn't come up with this. So, Lawson, what have we got next week? Well, next week we will be, in such a timely fashion, (laughs) talking about our favourite films of 2022. We've finally gotten the last of the stragglers out of the way, and we are ready to reveal our lists, which I'm, I'm sure the world has been waiting for with bated breath. It was a pretty the Oscars. It was a pretty good year last year, so I'm very excited mm. to hear what we've all got on. Um, and uh, I always look forward to these episodes; they're pretty fun. So make sure to tune in next week if you want to hear our thoughts. And again, and again, as we always say, these are not necessarily what we are saying the best movies of the year are. They are our favorite movies. So they are sort of like if you wanted to get a really good picture of our tastes. Uh, you should be able to look at these top tens and have a pretty good idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're a week, we're a week late from the Academy, but, well, by the time it comes out, it'll be a two week, two weeks late, but- No, three weeks late. Oh, shit. But, you know, still- Because of the delay with editing. Just let the- Yeah, because- Just let the Academy have their time first before we come up with the real best movies of 2022. Mm. Yeah, because if you don't want to watch- Listen, sorry, if you don't want to listen to all of our episodes to understand our tastes, this is a good short way to understand. I wouldn't say short please either. Watch. Sorry, please listen to all of them, though. Um, you really nailed it, Sean. <laughs> yeah. So join us next week for when we do a deep dive into our top 10 films of 2022. Uh, the structure will be exactly the same as the previous two years. Yeah, so I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis.